Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. And if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 813, but I think it'll also be up here behind me. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Reading of this word. After three weeks of getting Tina Turner's great rock ballad, What's Love Got to Do With It, stuck in your head, we have a new song for today, so let's try it one more time. See how smooth things work on a Sunday morning? It's always amazing, amazing. Okay, is it there? It should be on the title slide. It looks like that. Not that one. No. Back, back. It. The anticipation is just building, isn't it? All right, I know. Right there. All right. All right. Little Huey Lewis gets get you going in the morning. This is good. All right. Trust me. Guys, here you have my permission. Even though I'm an old man, I still have my hearing. So you can just rock it out on when we do these things. It is it is good. Um, the power of love, even though I don't think that the perspective necessarily that Huey Lewis is, is taking in his song is the same perspective that I'm taking, it is the most powerful thing in the world. It's the power of love that caused God to create us. It's the power of love that caused God to be willing to give the life of his son to rescue us. You see, real love is incredibly powerful. It's amazingly powerful. And the way in our series, as we've been looking at the letter of 1 John, the way we've defined love is this. True love is sacrificing oneself, dying to self to serve the good of another. Well, today, what I want to do is pick up there in chapter 2 of 1 John and and, and he uses a little phrase where he says love is perfected. When we reflect the love of Jesus Christ, when we walk as he walked, the love of God is built up, is made complete within us in such a way that others see it and their lives are transformed. But perfect love ultimately 
is Jesus. He is the demonstration of exactly what perfect love is. Now, I want you to think about about Jesus. Oftentimes, when we talk about him, we refer to the fact that he has two natures. He is fully God. He was God from the very beginning because he has no beginning. He is an eternal being who always has been, always will be God. And in the power of his divinity, he came to show us what God the Father is like. If you want to get to know what God really is like, what he thinks of you, what his thoughts are, what his hearts are, what he's passionate about, we look at what he's revealed to us through his son Jesus in his word. And we see there the power of love made manifest. It's displayed. Because through Jesus, we see Father God's heart for us in Jesus willingly offering himself up for us. And Jesus is our only savior. God alone, who is perfect and sinless, could save humanity from our sin, from our failure, from our rebellion. And a perfect God willingly stepped into the inescapable quicksand of sin, of selfishness, of our brokenness, and rescued us. When I was thinking about this um, this week, a, a picture came into my mind. And it's a picture from a, a movie that uh, it was a long time ago called Hidalgo that's about a, um, a horse race that takes place in Saudi Arabia. And so I'm going to let the clip play in the background. There's no sound on it because the sound didn't quite work with my message. So uh, I just cut that out. But here you see Frank Hopkins, who's a cowboy, and he's taking part in this race across the Ocean of Fire, which is the Arabian Desert. And according to the rules of the race, you are not allowed to help anyone else, any other rider. And yet, his chief rival, Sakar, had fallen into quicksand. And Frank, his sense of, of, of right and wrong overrides his um, willingness to stick to the rules and customs of the race. And so he willingly pulls his chief rival out of the quicksand. And, and the reason I wanted to use that is because it's a great picture of what God has done for us. You see, for us, there's nothing we could do, just like there's nothing that Sakar could do to get out of where he was. He was absolutely helpless. In fact, he says in the movie, this is just the will of God, let me die. He realizes there's nothing he can do. Someone outside of the quicksand had to come and pull him out. And that is exactly what God has done for us only he's done even more. Because not only is, is Jesus absolutely perfect, he's not stained by any of the sin that claims us, but a perfect God willingly, not only threw a rope to rescue us, he went into the very depths of sin, our sin, not his own, our sin, and he lifted us out. That's the picture of our God and his love. And when we see him from above, when we look at his divine nature, we see the power of love beautifully displayed in the way that he rescues us. The scripture puts it this way in Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And that last little phrase shows us the second part of Jesus' nature, the part that takes place in our life day after day. Because he saves us, and once we're saved, once we trust in Jesus, we're saved from our sin forever. But there's a change that happens within us as his life becomes more and more real and present within us that changes us. Because here's the, here's the other side of Jesus. He's not only fully God, he is also fully human. If you want to see what God's original intent for humanity was, for the, for the relationship, for the character, for the nature of what he designed for men and women to be, we see it in Jesus. Because Jesus is also the perfect human being. His love is what God designed for us to give to one another out of love for him. And so when we see the beauty of who he is, we recognize the incredible magnitude of his power and his greatness. Jesus is fully God. He came to show us what the Father is like, but also Jesus is fully human. He came to show us what humanity was created to be and to do. And that is absolutely incredible. Because here's the thing you should take away from that. Because of who Jesus is and because he now lives in, within me, if you've trusted him and his Holy Spirit resides within you, we can learn to love in the same way that Jesus did. The same kind of absolute transformation is not just something that is reserved for us um, for heaven, it's something that can happen through us now. He came to show us how to love. Here's how 1 John in his letter says it in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. You see, when we choose to follow the example of Jesus Christ, when we choose to obey his commands, first and foremost, the love commandments, his love is perfected. It's made mature within us. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What that verse does is it challenges us to examine our own life and examine our own love. Does my love look like the love of Jesus? Or is it filled with me? You see, Jesus willingly emptied himself. He did so in, in coming to earth in the incarnation. He emptied himself of his power, of his prestige, of his position. The God of the universe willingly humbled himself out of love for you and for me to draw us to a relationship with the Lord and to show us also how to love one another. So Jesus himself is perfect love in practice. The verses that Karen read for us earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 shows us what God's love for you and me is like. And so we're, we're going to read them again and we're going to look at them for just a moment. But this time, I want you to look at those words that are said there and I want you to, to receive them 
instead of just look at them and, going and, and realizing how far, far short you fall. Because I know when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and I compare it to how poorly I love others, it's discouraging. But when I look at it from the perspective, this is how God, how Jesus, who is love perfected, loves me, it changes everything. Okay, so let's, let's look at it again. We're just gonna look at verses four through eight. God's love for you is patient. God's love for you is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Have you thought about that? How many of you, if you're very dead honest right now, how many of you think that most of the time God is mad at you? Okay, what did he just say in his word? It's not easily angered. God's love for us is patient, it's kind. He realizes we're a mess and he loves us anyway. It's not easily angered. Look at this next one. Oh, this is so good. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. God's love always trusts. God's love always hopes, always perseveres. God's love never fails. Isn't that great news? Because this is what God is saying first and foremost to us. This is how perfectly Jesus loves you and me. And we need to keep that perspective because the only way that we'll be empowered by his spirit within us to live a love like that is if we keep going back to remembering how much he loves us. How, in fact, John goes on later and says, um, we love because he first loved us. There's an absolute connection between the two. So what does it say about God's love? He shows us how humanity is to love one another as a reflection of his love. And he says that God's love for you and me endures. Love has to endure because all of us are imperfect except for Jesus. People will do things that you don't like. You can love them anyhow as you confront the behavior and deal with the the behavior that hurts you because enduring love forgives. It forgives the offenses that have been brought against us. This is what Jesus does for us. Perfect love values the relationship more than the circumstances or the wounds. That's what it means when it says it endures. That's the kind of love God wants to build in you and I for one another and for other people. Secondly, love is patient. Even healthy relationships require understanding and forgiveness. And God understands you better than you do. He sees the battles that each one of us face. He knows the quicksand of depression, of fear that surrounds you. If you have trusted him with your eternal salvation, you can also trust him with every area of your life, every trial, every fear, every insecurity, every hurt, every thought that is confusing. You can trust him with that because he's patient with us. He understands our weaknesses. 
He was willing, while we were still his enemy, to step into the mud and to lift us up. And he wants to empower us to love others in the same way. His love is kind. In fact, when you look at the Old Testament, the word in the Hebrew language is the word hased, which would be the equivalent to the Greek word agape, um, which means an unconditional love. In the Old Testament, hased means a loving kindness built upon a promise, on a covenant. God loves you with loving kindness. It's not just, here's what that means. He doesn't just love you because he has to and it's his nature. He loves you because he likes you. Okay? Please allow that to get from here to here. He loves you because he likes you. He already knows how messed up you are and how messed up I am. And he likes you anyway. Someone should say amen. There, thank you. I don't do that very often, but that one deserves one not from me, but from God. And what does he say? Love keeps no record of wrongs. The scripture tells us that the sin that we have committed and will commit, that Jesus took that sin and he nailed its record to the cross. The Old Testament, the way it describes what God does is that he takes our sin and he removes it from us as far as the east. East is from the west, okay? And east and west never meet. If you start going north and you could travel far enough, eventually you would pass the North Pole and you would start traveling south. But if you go east, you will always be going east. You will never be going west unless you turn around. So when he says that, he's saying it is absolutely gone. The record of our sin is eradicated in his love. That's the beauty of what he does. He loves us that way. Now, what about us? Because we need to turn this over too and we need to look at it from the other side. How am I doing at loving others? Am I a scorekeeper? Are you a scorekeeper? Are you waiting for someone to mess up again because they did the last 17 times in a row? You know, because somewhere in the back of your mind you've been keeping score. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It has a higher call, a higher purpose. And that's why he goes on to say, love bears up under anything. There are times in life when we have to stand strong and love sticks with it even when things are not going well, even when we're failing. Jesus' love is a love that can endure any trial. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you because perfect love chased us all the way from heaven to earth. The holy feet of Jesus stepped into our dirty lives. Jesus got messy for you and for me, and he calls us to get messy in our love for others as well. His holy feet stepped on dirty ground. And when we stand alongside of another person whose feet are also dirty, in his love, where we stand together in him becomes holy ground because God does a work of transformation. Love bears up. It also says that love believes. Love is always ready to believe the best of each person. 
That's a challenge for me. That, Lord, I want to begin to see people the way you do, with the same perspective, with the same understanding. So remember that if Jesus can change me, he can change anybody. I have absolute confidence in that when I stop and remember the greatness of his love. Finally, it says that love never ends. It never fades. It never becomes obsolete. It's always working. It's always expressing itself. God's love is continual towards you and me. Now, if that's true, if that's the description of perfect love, of God's love for you, what would happen in our world if those who claim to follow Jesus Christ chose to love others like that. You see, too often we place our hopes for transformation, for change in the wrong things. We'll, ta- we'll place our hope and our trust in political systems, in um, economic systems. We'll place our hope that things will get better in things that are not powered by the greatest resource in all of the universe, the love of God. What brings transformation into a person, into a family, into a relationship, into a community, into a church, into a nation, into our world, is the power of God's love. He has given us a resource that is absolutely unstoppable unless we choose not to use it. That's why Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. When we truly learn to love others as God loves us, it changes absolutely everything. So let's look again here at this passage in 1 John 2. In verse 7, John says it this way. He says, beloved, and he, and he speaks this with a very tender heart. I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. What he's saying is this, this is consistent with what I told you all the way back in, in Deuteronomy and in Numbers. That the great commandment is that you should love the Lord your God with all that you are, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus makes it a new commandment because he gives us the right definition of who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is not necessarily the person like us or the person connected to us. It is the person that is near us that is radically different. Jesus gave us a redefinition when he turned everything upside down in the beautiful story of the, of the Good Samaritan and he took two people that naturally did not get along. In fact, they were enemies and he made a hero out of the Samaritan because of love. That's what he's calling us to do. It's a new commandment because when we live it, lives are changed. It is a new commandment I am writing to you, verse 8, which is true in him, in Jesus, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Remember, light always conquers darkness. Whoever says he is in, in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, when you first read that, if you're, if you're like me, the first thing you're thinking is, well, I don't hate anybody. But when John is using this word, he is using the word hatred as a contrast in the same sense as darkness and light. Darkness is not something in and of itself. Darkness is the absence of light. Biblically, when it comes to the requirement that God has for you and I, when we claim to be a follower of Jesus, hatred is not that we have an emotion or an animosity towards someone else. It is hatred because we do not choose to love them. There is a void within us of love. And the scripture says that, for all intents and purposes, is hatred in God's eyes. So you see, we're far more guilty than we recognize. But when we choose to love, then the power of God is released in us and through us in incredible ways. So how do we do this? What, what did Jesus do? What does perfect love in practice really, really look like? Well, I believe first and foremost that perfect love serves others. The next chapter in chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, By this we know love. And look how, how um, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of John, defines love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It could be brothers and sisters just as easily. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. He's saying that's what love looks like. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like laying down your life for another. In, in the Gospel of John, Jesus boldly made the statement, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for another. Most of us are familiar with that verse. And maybe even in our own heart and our mind, especially when we think of, uh, of people that are dear to us, like our family member or our child or, or our, our dear friend, we think, you know, if the circumstances were such, I think I would be willing to put my body physically in a place of protection that would allow another person to live, even though it meant my death. That ultimate sacrifice. And, and Jesus says that is the greatest expression of love. But what he means here is not just that you might be willing under the right circumstances to do that. What he's saying is this is a daily practice. In fact, it may be an hourly or moment-by-moment -moment practice that if we're really to love, the only way to do it is to lay down our life for another, to put them first. And so I have a little, a little acrostic um, called serves because I, I believe that perfect love always involves uh, doing what Jesus did. The God of the universe says he did not come to be served, but to serve. And so I'm going to use that as a, as a practical application of how we are to love others. And, and, and so serves is, a, is an acrostic. 
It begins with this, the sacrifice of self, self-denial. That's what Jesus did. If love begins with laying down my life for another, that means I've got to deny some of what I want in order to truly love someone else. It's an absolute requirement. If you're trying to hold on to all that you want, everything about you in a selfish way, you're never ever gonna be able to truly love. Sacrifice of self. This is what Jesus did not just on the cross, every single day of his life. Jesus, when you look at him, when you read through the New Testament and you see his life, you see it is a life that is committed to serving the needs of those around him. You know, Jesus, you don't see him going to the soccer match. If he did, he went to the soccer match to be with people. Not that there's anything wrong with a football match. Don't get me wrong. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. What I'm saying is he's not doing things for himself. He's not got, you know, he doesn't go, oh man, I can't wait until I get home because I'm, you know, I'm gonna watch this great show that's on Netflix. You know, Jesus doesn't do that. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but the attitude is he's looking for ways to lay down his life for the benefit and blessing of others. That's what drives him. He continually went to the cross in denying himself, denying even his own rights out of sacrificial love for us. It's a beautiful paradox because when we willingly lay down our lives, we encounter the glory, goodness, and joy of God. When you willingly express love in a selfless way to someone else, there is a joy in that that is absolutely unattainable in anything else. And if you've practiced that to at least some degree, you know that that is true. But in order for that to happen, there has to be a surrender of self. Charles Spurgeon, the great um, preacher, put it this way. He says, you will never glory in God till first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. If I'm continually putting myself first, I'm going to be incapable of really loving like God loves. Jesus puts it this way. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he, he says this same statement because it's something he repeated freak, uh, evidently according to the um, account of the scriptures often. He says, then if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we really want abundant life, it requires self-denial, a surrender of self. Perfect love is always focused on others and not on ourselves and results in incredible glory for God and joy for us. Now that same statement that Jesus made that's recorded about um, denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is recorded a little bit differently in the Gospel of John. Because there, John connects that with an analogy that Jesus made that is absolutely beautiful. In John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26, he said it this way. Jesus answered them and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, so he's, he's looking forward to the glory that he came to accomplish for the Father, for that to be revealed to everyone else. 
And he says this in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, a seed, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, excuse me, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates or forgets his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So he's saying that there is a glory, there is a joy that comes when we are willingly lay down our life out of love for God and for others. And he uses this incredible parable of a seed. There's a, go ahead and play the, the little video clip in the background. You can bring the music down on it. Um, but there's something amazing about a seed. I, I've noticed this because I've watched a bunch of these clips this week. When you, when you watch it and you discover when that plant moves from being a seed, which is placed into the ground, which is dead, and begins to germinate and become life, over the process of time, something amazing happens. The seed itself disappears because it is all caught up in the producing of life, of fruit, of growth. The same thing happens with love. When we willingly lay ourselves down, God promises to produce an abundant harvest in and through our lives that nothing else in this world could ever do. Love is powerful, but it requires a denial of self, of a willingness to be able to lay ourselves down completely. I want you to go from here with that picture in mind because sometimes, I don't want you to go away from here thinking it's just about all the things I'm not doing right. It's about a greater joy being set before us. That's why Jesus, it says in Hebrews, endured the cross for the joy set before him. You can fade that out. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was willing to lay his life down because there was something more beautiful, more powerful. He wanted you. He wanted me. And love reproduces. It bears incredible fruit. So the first thing, the first, the S there in serves is sacrificing ourself, self-denial. The E is empathize with others. Perfect love steps into the shoes and lives of others and we are to look at life ultimately from their perspective. It's the opposite of judging others. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The word brothers there, um, it means the united ones. We must understand that we who are in... Uh, are the church. We are Christ's body. We are united together. And we use the terms brother and sister, but often we fail to reflect on what it truly means. That original term in, in the original language, it means from the same womb. What God intends for you and I to have in our relationship with one another is that we're so close, it's as if we're from the exact same womb. Because guess what? We are born again from the exact same womb, Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So we are brothers and sisters in a, in a way that has a, a greater power, a greater beauty than even our natural families. We are from the same womb. So when he's calling us to empathize with others, to step into their shoes, he's calling us to be who he has united us to be. That's why this is so important, that we choose to look at the circumstances, even through those that frustrate us and annoy us, through their eyes. We empathize with them because that's what God has done for us. And it's absolutely beautiful. The third one, the R, is so important. S is to um, sacrifice self, self self-denial. The E is to empathize with others, to place ourselves in their position. And the R is to rest in Jesus. That's what he says here in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides. That means he rests, he lives in light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. The only way that we can love this perfect love is if we rest in Jesus and in his love. That's why I began by having us look at 1 Corinthians 13 as if God is saying, this is my love for you. Because we need to come back to that reservoir in order to have water to share with others. We need to drink deeply of his love. We love 1 John 4, 19 says, because he first loved us. Because here's the truth. Love is draining. It is costly. To really love others, we have to be continually reminded of God's love for us. Otherwise, we'll empty out way too quickly. The needs will always be greater than what we can meet unless we continually come back and rest in Jesus Christ, in his love and in his power, in us and through us. Sacrifice self, empathize with others, rest in Jesus, and the V is value the person as God's masterpiece. If you've been a part of ICP for a long time, you know I use that phrase a lot because that is how we're to see one another. That each person is God's masterpiece. It may be covered in mud, the colors may be running, the canvas may be ripped, but it is a masterpiece that he is restoring and it is absolutely beautiful. And therefore, what we, we need to do is we need to have the view of God, the value of God, and the voice of love in investing in the lives of others around us. Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We need to keep remembering that God is working in the lives of others and not get ahead of ourselves. Because real love sees others as God sees them. And it is in the light of love. And it is beautiful. Perfect love also values people over position. Romans 12, 15 puts it this way. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Love's not afraid to get dirty. To the person that 
you see, that you walk by, we need to be asking the question, Lord, is there something that you want me to do in their life? Would you make me willing to be like you? Would you help me to be a good Samaritan to the people around me, the people at work, people in my neighborhood, the people on the metro or on the tram, the people in my family? I don't want to be like that religious person that walked by on the other side. I want to value them as you value them. I want to see them through your eyes and love them effectively because Jesus calls us to walk as he walked in love. And perfect love speaks with the voice of love as well. We have to guard what we say and make sure that we're speaking in a way that honors the Lord in our lives with others. Well, we're to sacrifice self, we're to empathize with others, we're to rest in Jesus, we're to value the person as God's masterpiece. And the next, the next one is so hard. You should expect hardship. If you're really gonna love, it's gonna be costly. Even Jesus, who's absolutely perfect, when the moment came, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he realizes the full weight of what he is going to do, he says, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He said, if there's another way, I'll take it. But if not, I'll pay the price. Love will hurt. If it doesn't, it's probably not perfect love. Now, it will come back with abundant joy. Don't don't get that out of balance either, but it will be costly. If real love is sacrifice, it will take a lot for us to learn to love this way. Our expectation is that if we sacrifice, people will quickly appreciate our efforts. But often that is not the case. You will be misunderstood. You will be betrayed. You will be taken advantage of. You will be mistreated. The reason I know that is because that happened to Jesus. People will turn on you, but we're called to love that way, just as Jesus loved us. If it happened to him, we should not expect less. Now let me make a parenthesis here. Understanding that love hurts in that way is absolutely no excuse in a relationship, especially in a a family relationship or even, even in the workplace, to allow abuse to continue. God gives protective parameters. He gives legal options that are there to safeguard individuals because he's not calling a a wife or a husband to put themselves in an abusive situation over and over again because that's not love. Or even in the workplace, if you're being treated uh, with harassment in that way, that is not necessarily saying that you need to endure that. You need to look and, and take that to the Lord and ask the Lord, how do you want me to respond in a way that honors you and helps protect others as well? So I'm not making excuses in any way for that. But we also need to recognize that just in the living of our life, if we're to love as Jesus loves, there will be a cost. There's a set of of commandments that you probably heard. It's often attributed to Mother Teresa because she had it um, written on the wall in the house of the dying in Calcutta. And I've seen this wall. It's the paradox commandments. 
and they're beautiful, and um, let me just read them to you. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best that you have, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Good words to remember, because that's how Jesus loved. While we were still enemies, he died for us. So we're to expect hardship, but that leads to the last one, which is a treasure that often we overlook. And that is the last S, is share Jesus' suffering. Perfect love is costly, but when we choose to follow Jesus and love as he does, something beautiful happens even in the pain. We share God's heart. When you love, and it is not responded to in a way um, that brings people together. It is painful. When as a parent, you seek to love your child and the child turns away and rebels against you, it grips your heart with such a tight grip that it feels like your heart's being ripped out of your chest. When you're in a marriage relationship and a spouse is unfaithful, when they've broken that trust and betrayed you, you feel like your heart is breaking. But let me remind you of something. Part of that weight that you feel is sensing the very heart of God because he feels the same way. When we see suffering and brokenness in our world and we're brought to tears, God is sharing his heart with us. He's saying, I want you to see from my vantage point why it was so important for me to send my son, to step into the brokenness and to make things right. And right now, I'm sharing my heart with you. I understand how you feel because I feel the same way. But I'm gonna use you in the midst of this as my hands and as my feet to show my love, my power, and my truth if you just hold on to me. There's a verse in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, which is, has been my life verse for a long time, but I will confess it's one that I've struggled with for a number of reasons. It says this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. I really like that part. I grab a hold of that one. I mean, I want to see miracles happen. But the next phrase is hard and the participation in his sufferings. Paul is saying here when he's writing, he's saying, I want to be so united with Christ that I share in his sufferings, I share his heart. Because the only way that we can really truly learn to love as God loves 
is to share that. Becoming like him in his death and somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. What was partly confusing to me was that phrase. And I don't think, it, I don't think he means by that in any way um, his salvation. What I think he means is the life-giving power that comes out of love that is expressed as Jesus loves it. Because just as a grain of wheat, as a seed falls to the ground and dies, it, if, it, if, it, if it doesn't, it remains alone. When it does, it produces an abundant harvest. It produces a resurrection of life and love. I believe that's what he had in mind. And he writes something similar in 2 Corinthians 1.5 where he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Because as God shares his heart with you, when we love sacrificially, he also fills us with his comfort so we can be a comfort to others and be encouraged in our walk as well. Let me sum up what I think John is telling us with this phrase that is so commonly used but rarely understood. It is simply this, I love you. I is our identity. We are now in Christ. And as we are in Christ, his life and his perfect love will flow through us when we cling to him. Love is the action of God's life pouring in us and through us to serve the needs of others and you is the direction with which the love of God is to go outward from us and into the life of another. That's what a real I love you means. Is that God is using me as I stand in the identity of Jesus Christ as a follower of him to express his love, his action, his service towards you. That's how we want to learn to love one another. Father God, would you teach us about your perfect love? Would you make us willing to be able to surrender ourselves, to lay down and sacrifice our wants, our comforts, Lord, to sacrifice even good things for greater things in order to love as you love us. Lord, show us how to do that. I pray for each person in this room that first of all, they will recognize how immeasurably you love them. That they would recognize the extent that you have gone to draw them to yourself. And then, Lord, would you show us how moment by moment to lay down a part of ourself in love to serve others and to love them as you have loved us. Help us, Lord to reflect you correctly. In Jesus' name, amen.